Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Uh, happy Father's Day, fathers. My two-year-old boy told me last night that I was the greatest dad in the world. I apologize if that's a letdown to you other dads. You're a distant second place. I'm only two years into this thing. Anyways, let's pray before we get into this series in our morning uh, where we'll be looking at the story of Jeremiah, the one who weeps constantly, unlike those children who apparently have never cried before in their lives. Jesus, God, you are good. And we thank you that you give us freedom uh, to come and worship you and experience you uh, as you are right now available, so willing uh, to be found. Speak in these moments how you would. We love you. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said. Amen. It is a gorgeous day today for it to be Father's Day. And so I apologize. What we're going to do is we're going to go into a dark place a little bit. Jeremiah was a dark person in a lot of ways. If you study the story of Jeremiah, you come quickly to find that he was an emotional basket case more often than not. He swung from one extreme of complete joy. He was blissed out head to toe. And then the other side, he was saying, I wish... My mother's womb would have been my grave. I wish I didn't make it to my day one. He's kind of all over the map. And one of the reasons why he is so extreme is because this was a very extreme time in the story of Israel. Israel was in a dark place. Israel had forgotten what it meant to live in a covenantal relationship with Yahweh, the one who brought them out of Egypt and all the way to the promised land. They had given up that relationship, and in exchange, they took on rituals. They took on uh, uh, this idea that that was the faith of uh, our forefathers, that was the faith of our parents. They acquired the land. We don't have to do anything anymore. We don't have to live differently because what they set out to do, they accomplished. So how we live then, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Jeremiah, though, he said that's, that's not true at all actually. Jeremiah was the kind of prophet where uh, late at night you would hear his car going down the streets of Jerusalem. It was probably a charger. And he would just be shouting out at people, turn or burn. He was a doom and gloom kind of prophet. Kids would run when they saw Jeremiah coming. Old men would cower in the corners. Jeremiah was an intimidating force because he could not stomach the idea that God's people would turn their backs on God. But that is exactly what was happening. So much so that in Jerusalem at this time, there were high altars that were being built, not to worship God, but to offer children as sacrifices to Baal. They were killing kids to honor another God. So Jeremiah, he is fed up, and there's a moment where you see it most explicitly. It's Jeremiah 7, where he goes to the temple, and he says this sermon He says, do not trust in deceptive words. Do not say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And you do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you stop killing those kids. If you do all these things. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm then I'm going to let you stay. This land that your parents came and they found, the one that was promised to your people, it could be promised to you if you change, 
if you repent, if you live differently. The land I gave your ancestors forever and ever could be yours. But look at you right now. You're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. There was that gap between the words and the ways of the Israelites. For them, religion was not, uh, uh, it wasn't a relationship where they actually engaged with the heart of God. It was religious pageantry. And in this way, for them back then and for us today, religion can be dangerous because religion can be an incredible smokescreen. It keeps you from seeing the movements underneath what is actually happening. Religion can teach you that all you need to do is show up at the temple, tuck your shirt and mind your P's and Q's, perform your lines perfectly, and you're good. Nothing else really matters. So the people would go into the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. But then they would go and they would oppress and kill and cheat and lie. And Jeremiah was hoping that they would change their ways. Because if they did not, a storm was coming. Life was going to be taken out from them. You see this uh, uh, idea of living in a false story under a limited reality in our favorite Kansas girl. Kansanian? Is that a word, John? Would that work? Kansan. That makes more sense. Dorothy Gale. Do you remember Dorothy Gale? Small dog Toto. She was about yay highs. Dorothy Gale lived in the dirty 30s when the Dust Bowl was completely covering uh, Kansas in a time where you didn't really have much idea of dreaming for a future. You were just trying to get by in today. You're trying to make ends meet. And the same way the Israelites were living in that limited experience, underneath the false story, and the tornado came and swept them away. For the Israelites, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, in 587, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. God said, if you change your ways, this doesn't have to be like this. You could stay in the land, but they did not change their ways. So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they surround Jerusalem. For 18 months straight, they beat Jerusalem black and blue until the city completely falls. King Zedekiah, he is led into exile. His own kids are killed in front of him. The political, the religious, the social leadership, everything was taken from them. They all walk 800 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon where they will die. They will live forever in exile. The only people left behind in Jerusalem, in the city that is now burnt, has been destroyed. The temple is no longer standing. The only people left were the peasants, the poor, the ones who nobody really cared about. People like Jeremiah. Everyone else, though, was gone. The tornado took Dorothy to Oz. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, it takes Judah into exile. And by the rivers of Babylon, as we read in 137 of the Psalms, the people cry. They're weeping. They're mourning. In the captures, uh, they're asked, uh, won't you sing us that music that you used to sing? You know, sing us the good songs of how you used to sing in Jerusalem. And they said, how, how are we supposed to sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? How are we supposed to actually live as if we are capable of living? God is back there. We have been abandoned. We are orphans. Instead, 
He probably sang the anthem of all exiles at all times. Maybe you remember this song. Temptation, when you go into exile, when life flips your world upside down, is to believe that all hopes for a good future, all dreams, all potential that your day tomorrow could be better than your day today, they're gone. Everything is behind you. You want to return to when the tornado was not there. You want to return to the hours before Babylon set Jerusalem on fire. Let me ask you a question. Have you had a moment in your life where before that moment everything felt like it was in control? Everything felt like you understood what it was and then that moment came in and after that nothing looked the same. You were lifted into a new reality. You once had prepackaged answers of when people ask you, who are you? What are you about? You'd say, well, I'm this, I do that, I, I, I like that, that's what I am. But now, everything's shifted. Perhaps you had a job that you loved, and then they made cutbacks. Perhaps you had a child that got sick, and the doctors were quiet. Maybe you retired, and you woke up the next day, you didn't know what to do with the time. Maybe you were a high school hockey star, the life of the party, and then you graduated. When you go into exile, away from the crowds and the trophies and the accolades of back home that answer for you that question of who are you, exile is the chance to find out for yourself what you are about. This is the opportunity that is before the Israelites. And yet in exile, they were there with the false prophets who were saying, you cannot be you unless you are back in Jerusalem. In other words, they fell for the same lie that Dorothy fell for. There is no place like home. You can't be you unless you can get back. But it makes no sense. At least it made no sense to the scarecrow. Scarecrow walking with uh, Dorothy, he says, Scarecrow listens carefully and says, I cannot understand. Why you should wish to leave this beautiful country and go back to the dry, gray place you call Kansas? Well, that's because you got no brains, answered the girl. No matter how dreary and gray our homes are, we people of flesh and blood. We would rather live there than any other country, be it ever so beautiful, because there is no place like home. Scarecrow sighed. Of course, I cannot understand it, he said. If your heads were stuffed with straw like mine, you would probably all live in the beautiful places. And then Kansas would have no people at all. It's very fortunate, actually, for Kansas that you have brains. That's pretty good, right? We have these uh, imaginary moments of nostalgia where we believe that our yesterdays were so good if we could just get back there. I had that experience. I think it was week one when I maybe came into Mitchell's office weeping my eyes out because I wasn't sleeping anymore after having a child. And I thought, man, if I could just go back to before this whole thing. Love my kid. Don't get me wrong. I feel like I really need to say that out loud right now. I do love my child. But losing sleep so quickly was that moment where I wanted to reach backwards. 
And you realize oftentimes in that reaching backwards that you are opting out of the colors of Oz and choosing to live in the colorless land of Kansas. You're going back to that lesser. We reach all the time. It's part of the human condition. In fact, since the beginning of time, since if we go back all the way to the story of Genesis, there have been many creative storytellers who have joined the writers of Genesis in saying that you can't actually ever go back home. We all live east of Eden now. Life moves automatically forward, but we have the choice. Will we move with it? Or will we try just to reach backwards? You see, exile for the Israelites who were living in this time where they thought they had it all figured out. If they just did religion, they would be secure. God would have their back, but then Jerusalem was set on fire. Exile is that chance to remember that you can't wear a winter coat in the middle of July. Seasons change. Time is not a static and still thing. The moments come, the moments go. The tornado happens. Life sends you into a new direction. And if you do not evolve and go with it, and be in the moment where you are, you cease to live because you are not where you are. And you abide by the rules of a false story. You become like a flea who's been stuck in a jar. I don't know if you guys know this about fleas. Fleas, uh, they can be stuck in a jar, and what happens is they'll be jumping up and down. Fleas, now, they can jump much, much higher than the lid of the jar, but what, they ha- what happens when they're in the jar is they, for several days in a row, they will hit their heads on that lid. Day in, day out, hitting their heads. And then, when the lid is removed, the flea comes out, and the tragedy is, is that even without the lid, they will never jump higher than the height of the lid. They're stuck to that false story. They live in that, that story, that dominant narrative that says you cannot be you unless you are back there in that time. The tragedy of the fleas is that for their children as well, they copy and paste the flying patterns of their parents. And so their kids will never grow and they'll never fly higher than the lid that they never even experienced. So what happens then, what we learn from something like this and what Jerem, what the exile is providing is an opportunity is that if we do not seek to live in the moment but only are living behind us, that is not just going to impact us. You are inflicting damage upon other people. Other people pay for it. And the Bible talks about that over and over again with the generational curses that happen. When you carry on a negative story that does not stop here, it seeps down. And it continues. That's why I think in Jeremiah when he is standing in Jerusalem and he's writing to the exile, the first thing that he tells them, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those, hear this, that I carried into exile. God was the one who delivered this. God was the tornado. And could it be that the tornado did not come for destruction, but was actually offering a chance for deliverance? Could it be that that life-altering moment that you went through, that moment that felt like much more than just a moment, could it be that in that, it was God saying, I cannot stomach the idea of leaving you as a flea. 
I want so much more for who you are. Life of the flea, of the lesser version that was being lived out in Israel. The tragedy was not that they were aiming so high with their life and missing. The tragedy was they were aiming so low and hitting the target every single time. So God interrupted and broke that pattern of false stories and took them into something new, something better. And then Jeremiah writes to the people, but what would he say? What do you say in a moment like this when the world has been set on fire, when you no longer know what the next step is, what the right words are, what will he say to the people in this time? And here's, I think, one of the more prophetic things that you find in all of Jeremiah's text. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see what's happening here in the exile is the people who thought they had everything, they were exposed and finally coming to realize that they had nothing. In the exile, you come to the end of yourself. Which is the perfect place to be if God is going to do an amazing new thing in your life. This is a creation out of nothing story. God created the world when there was just a void. It was chaos. Out of nothing, God brought forth life and light. And he was doing it again right here. But the powerful image that Jeremiah is casting here is a saying that you can begin again. Whatever happened, whatever went wrong with your life before, whatever was going right with your life before, the opportunity for newness is now. And this is revolutionary. Because the Jewish people at this time, they're thinking, well, there's no way we can actually begin again because God is back there, 800 miles away, and we're right here. How could we actually do that? But Jeremiah is saying that Jerusalem... It burned in the fire, but God did not die in the flames. God was not limited to that space right there. The spirit seeped into the streets. Jeremiah is calling for the revelation to understand that this can be Jerusalem right here in Babylon. Wherever you go is where God is. Paul says it like in him, in the Father, in the Almighty, in him, inside of his reality, we live and we move and we have our being. You can't be exiled away from God. Amen? And the people in the exile, they were coming to understand this. This is a wake-up moment for them. This is the moment uh, that Jacob, the patriarch, years and years and years before, he goes on his own little sojourn. He goes on his own little exile where he wanders, and he falls asleep, and he has a dream, and he experiences God inside the dream. And then he wakes up, and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I don't know if you're like me in this way, but I can get so busy, so wrapped up in to-do lists, routines, patterns of my everyday life. And if it's not that, it's often reaching back, wishing I had that one thing that I do not have. That I become completely unaware that God has been in this place all along. 
I become completely unaware that I haven't. To build, to plant, to settle down, to eat the food, to get married, to make babies, and then to pray for your enemies. That is God's way saying through the words of Jeremiah that your story is not over. Friends, this is the story of resurrection right here. Resurrection is that place We look at resurrection, we think of resurrection of Jesus as a a historical event that was landlocked into that time and place. But what Christ says through Paul's writings all over is that the story of Christ coming out of the grave is energizing you. It is the spirit of the resurrection that is here today. Which tells us that no matter what pain we have, that pain is real. We name the pain, we experience the pain, we step into the pain, we own the pain. But the moment that the pain tries to say that it has the final word, we walk away. Because the resurrection says that the story's never over. Exile may be that holy Saturday or the day after Christ goes on to the cross, but it is living in anticipation for the tomb to being emptied. What Jeremiah is writing is that today is day one, so practice resurrection experience what God is calling you into right now because this is where God is. God is not in the past. He is not distant in the future. He is right here waiting for you. And the question that he asks throughout the story of Genesis to Moses, to Adam, over and over again is, where are you? Where are you? Are you here with me? Are you still back there? We're powerfully reminded in the story uh, uh, of what it looks like to wake up and realize that God has not abandoned us. Uh, God has not left us. And that anything is possible. When we come to that place where even though we're on the banks of the rivers of Babylon, even though we have our city and our home life and everything that we once knew it is gone, we build and we plant and we settle and we move forward. And there is powerful hope that that gives to the world. We saw it this week. Charleston, South Carolina, have the story of on Wednesday you have a group of people who are living in the reality of experiencing God in this moment. They come together to listen to the story of God as a community, as it was designed to be heard. And in walks a young man who they immediately envelop in their community. They pull up a chair for him. An hour later, the young man opens fire on nine of them, ending their lives. This is a tornado moment. Nebuchadnezzar has seized. Jerusalem is on fire. And this is that Saturday moment of the exile where you can believe that God did indeed die last night. Or you can live practicing resurrection. And there is not a more important story that the world needs to hear than a group of people who are daily practicing resurrection who are daily being dealt blows, but getting back up. Because death cannot have the final say. Love always adds an extra word. Yesterday I woke up and um, grabbed the paper. And we learned that love actually does have the final word. To practice resurrection is to say that hate will not win. It can't win. That is the gospel message in a core 
nutshell right there is Christ came to conquer death. Death, where is your sting? It is no longer because hate cannot win. Love has to win. The story of Jeremiah calling to the people in exile who have lost everything is to say this. You have little say in where your story starts. Where your story starts, its context is out of your hands. But the content, you have much to say about that. Will we be a people who practice resurrection and bring life and light into the darkness of death? When everybody else says you should cease to go on living, you leave the banks of Babylon and you pray for the enemy. You pursue the welfare of those who try to take everything from you. The families of the victims, they sat in the courtroom on Friday and they told their, the killer, they said, you're loved. May God have mercy on you. We forgive you. You hurt us. Not going to play it off like you did. And you did, but, but I forgive you. That's an incredible story that needs to be lived. I don't know if your story starts in a, a place like Kansas where it's just kind of confusing. Maybe it's just the, the ho-hum, daily, patterned lives where you're not really thinking you have much of a future. It just is what it is. Or maybe it's like Jerusalem. Something happened. Something went wrong. Somebody uh, did something to you and all of a sudden you no longer know how to go on living. I don't know where your story begins. But the powerful message of the gospel is that you get the opportunity to begin Again, because Christ is here, Christ is risen, and he's calling you to come from death to life. People are depending on you to do so. Pray with me. Jesus, you are God. You are good. You've given us permission to live again. You encouraged us, Lord, to not give up not believe that death has the final say, but to believe that the tomb is empty and that love and life always win. The story is not over. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you, to find you, to cling to you, to wake up, Lord, and experience that you have been here all along and we were just unaware of it. In Christ's name, all of God's children said, Amen.